0: We are calling people not simply as white people to engage in the work of reparations. Uh, If that were our only argument, then I would have no place in it. We're calling the Christian church, uh, everyone who bears not whiteness per se, but everyone who bears the name of Christ. uh, Because the church itself as a community, as a corporate entity, uh, was complicit in and actually active perpetrators of the evils of white supremacy.
1: Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we are talking about how we can respond to the brokenness in our own lives and in our society with our heads, hearts, and hands. And man, when it comes to these topics, it has been an intense couple of weeks. Last week, we learned about the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin, and that came in a season of repeated reports of police killings of black and brown teenagers, repeated reports of violence against Asian Americans, and plenty of other signs of social harm all around our nation. And it's in the midst of those conversations, those heartbreaks, uh, those ongoing concerns and deep wounds within our society, that I get to talk with Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. These men have written a book called Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. And today, yes, we are going to talk about heavy topics like reparations, white supremacy, theft, injustice, but what I love about this conversation is how much it illustrates the fact that when we do that work to talk about the harm of our history and the ongoing problems of our current moment, it can open up so many possibilities to talk about creative, imaginative, beautiful work, the work of restoration that we all are invited to participate in if we can open our hearts and minds to those glorious possibilities. One more thing. We are giving away a copy of Reparations and I do recommend it highly. To enter to win, share this podcast. That's all you need to do. Just share it on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and tag me when you share it so I know you've done it. If you want to get more details about this giveaway, just go to the show notes. I'm here today with Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. They have co-authored a new book. It's called Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. And we are going to get to talk pretty much about all the words in that title um, as we move forward. But first, I just want to say, Duke and Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you.
1: Thanks. Um, So at the very end of the book, you mentioned that this book emerged out of a conversation that the two of you had in Nashville a few years ago. So I thought maybe that might be a way for us to get to know you a little bit. If you could introduce yourselves, just who are you, but also how did this book come to be and why are the two of you the ones who are the right people to write this book?
0: Well, I can kick off by just saying, hi, I'm Duke Kwan. I'm a pastor in Washington, D.C. Been here for about 15 years, and um, a joy to walk with people, uh, not only through gospel life, but the implications of the gospel for uh, the complex issues of cross-cultural community and uh, social justice, mercy ministry. Um, grateful for all the challenges of urban life uh, that we're walking through together, and that is part of where uh, these convictions for me uh, have been rooted, um, just plowing this particular mission field over uh, these years. Um, but to the story that you were referring to, yeah, Greg and I, we've known each other for some years. Um, I guess our roots get tied together first in through the campus ministry network that we were both both a part of uh, some years ago, but got uh, reconnected and reacquainted um, over the years. And then one day found ourselves both at a a conference, a Q conference um, where I was doing a talk on reparations Mm. and sort of in our church and ministry space, there, there, there aren't a lot of people that were uh, barking up that tree. And, um, and I think we uh, just started finding in each other, uh, maybe like-minded dudes that wanted to uh, work through this, talk through this. And that was when we just started uh, thinking about, gosh, what would it look like for us to partner together and work on this, write on it, um and sort of advance this conversation publicly for the good of the church
2: yeah so for me um so this is greg thompson and i i have a little bit of a complicated vocation i was a pastor for a number of years now i'm leading a project to build a national memorial of the underground railroad um i'm a scholar on on civil rights history um did my phd at uva on mlk and um by nature of my work i'm find myself both in exclusively black communities and largely white communities, and I realized that the conversations about race and its redress in America are very different between those two communities that um, often in African-American communities, and historically, this is certainly true, the conversation is around reparations, but in other communities I'm a part of, it's largely about reconciliation or maybe some sort of institutional reform or personal repentance, um, and that that felt to me like a, a real, it feels to me still like a real gap um, in mutual understanding, um, that needed to be addressed. And I had been thinking about this topic and how to communicate it. And I heard Duke give his talk. Um, I was actually in the audience when he gave the talk and Mm. I texted him during the talk and said, let's do a book together on this. And by the next day we had met with a with a publisher, um, who agreed to do it. And, um, You know, I think also it's important to note that the first time Duke and I really spent substantive time together was the month after the Charleston shootings. He and I were both invited to an event in D.C., um, a small event um, where we met, and I think both of us at that time were, were, you know, he'd been doing cross-cultural ministry, I'd just been doing academic work in African American history, but I think we both realized that our lives were being taken in a different direction. Mm-hmm. um and that somehow they were going to be bound up with common work but we didn't know what that was going to be and that was in 2015 and here you know these five or six years later this is where it led
1: mm-hmm. I love hearing that story and it did seem like a timely you know it just um obviously all those roads collided in a good way at that conference in nashville and i'm grateful for what you all put together Um, for those of us who are pretty new i think uh, for many listeners of this podcast i would guess that we are new to a conversation about reparations and i think one of the things i was thinking about as i read your book even among people who care about injustice who want to participate in healing social divisions and greg you kind of spoke to this um Reparations is not the word, at least in white Christian circles that I've been in, that usually comes up. And in fact, it can be a dead end for conversation and for action. I wanna quote you all for a minute. You wrote, we believe that the racial healing so desperately needed in our nation in white and black communities will be found not merely in personal repentance, relational reconciliation or institutional reform, but in the work of reparations. I wanted to start there and ask you all, first of all, just to define reparations, because there may be listeners who aren't clear on what that is in general, but also what you mean when you say it. And then also, can you speak to that? This is the only path for healing. Uh, We can't do it through these other, um, perhaps more conventional means that we have to involve reparations. So what is it and why do we have to involve it?
2: Yeah, Well, I'll take a a crack at that. Um, You can (laughs) augment um, anything I'm leaving out here. I mean, we define reparations as the self-conscious act of restoring that which has been stolen by white supremacy through the act of restitution, where we are culpable in the act of restoration, where we are not culpable, but still responsible um, to work and love. that's a there's a lot in that definition, but that is that's how we think the Christian scriptures and the in the th- Christian theological tradition lead us to think about this thing called reparations. Um, and you know, and I think um, part of the reason that we we think that this is really uh, the only way. Let me let me just qualify that slightly. It's not that we don't think that repentance and reconciliation and reform are are necessary parts. We just don't think they're sufficient parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and so we think those are really important, and we're engaged in all those in our own lives. Um, but we I think we think both pragmatically, what we're seeing is that, for example, just in evangelicalism, there's been a strong um, there's been a strong emphasis on racial reconciliation really since the 1970s mm-hmm. the late 1970s um, and yet um, we can see the limitations of of the effectiveness of that um. And so I think that, and I think that like, you know, like King did toward the end of his life, really from 65 to 68, we ourselves have been coming to terms increasingly with the massively systemic nature of the consequences of American racism. And we think that they have to be addressed um, through the work of repair. So it's a, it's a, it's a pragmatic uh, claim based on what we're observing it's also a theological claim based on what we think our the scriptures and the tradition teach and this is and we see that it's no accident that um, you know kind of an american broadly white christian church doesn't know how to think about this Um, and so part of what we're trying to do is to say we need to bring this part of our theological and historical and scriptural tradition to bear to inform people who for a whole series of cultural reasons are just not aware of this conversation Mm
0: Yeah, I'd simply just add um, part part of what we're arguing is that the nature of racism um, and the particular expression of racism that we find in American history, which we call white supremacy, um, is far more robust and comprehensive than most American Christians think it is. And so most of our approaches only look at a certain angle of it, and especially racial reconciliation, that's sort of our go-to sort of healing strategy, as it were, where we see racism primarily as being an evil or a harm that's exchanged between two people or between individuals interpersonally. Now, that's true, and that's biblical, but what we're saying is if we understand racism for what it really is, the harms go far beyond personal relationships. They go deeper, they go longer, they go wider, and for centuries. And so if we're really going to do the work of uh, not just forgiving and not just moving forward, but actually undoing the harms, actually repairing Mm -hmm. the wide, broad, and deep harms, social harms, uh, the harms that have been done to the narratives of truth, um, as with respect to black dignity, with uh, with respect to American history, with respect to uh, the identity and the history of the church in America, uh, we need to restore these things. Um, and that is why we can confidently say uh, just reconciliation, for example, is not comprehensive enough to truly bring about the healing uh, that God has called us to be
2: mm-hmm. a part
0: of Um uh so we're not calling reparations morally superior necessarily we're just saying that it's it's scooping up um in its sort of scope of in, in its hori- moral horizon something um more uh sort of comprehensive um than most visions of racism uh really account for
1: yeah so within that um I want to also just define white supremacy because I think that's another word that often is treated as taboo and certainly not a word that most white people, white Christians would like to identify with, right? Like white supremacists are those guys over there with their robes and hats, right? That it has nothing to do with me. Um, And yet you tackle this question head on and are like, no, 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 white supremacy is something far bigger and deeper and wider than that. And it's really important that we name it as such. So can you define white supremacy in the way that you're using it? And also why that it's so important that we actually start to reckon with the idea um, and reality of white supremacy in this nation?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it's important to understand that in, in one sense, what you've said is uh, that, that people say is actually true, and that it, it doesn't fundamentally have something to do with what's going on in your, with you or what's going on in your heart at a given moment. Mm-hmm. That is because um, it is, it's what we call a cultural disorder. And, and to understand that disorder, we basically make two claims. The first is that whiteness as we, can, as we understand it is a modern invention. Um, you know, we have this line in the book that once upon a time, there were no white people and um and you know du bois himself says that he's like the the notion of of whiteness as a category organizing category for human beings is a very modern notion indeed yeah. this is what he says and so i think first that we have to understand that whiteness is a modern invention and that it was invented because of its poli- because uh it was invented and endowed with a political function and that political function is supremacy and what we mean by that is that we live in a cultural order that, for a whole series of cultural and historical reasons, bestows the privileges of this order, um, namely the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, primarily on those people that it deems to be white. Um, that that is not a commentary on an individual person's, like whether they have black friends. It is not a commentary on you know whether they own slaves. It's, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a cultural disorder, a, a cultural disorder that we all have inherited. That has designated certain people white and other people not white and that it correlatively bestows particular kinds of blessings on people that it designates to be white over those that it does not deem to be white. That is historically beyond controversy. And I think that that once we begin to see that this is not primarily, you know, critiquing my grandpa, that this is not primarily, you know, trying to dismantle the goods in America, the good things about the American mm-hmm. nation, and we can see, is it in fact true or not true that the American nation has designated certain people white and other people non-white in a way that has not been true historically around the world? A. And B, is it or is it, or is it not true that that group of people has largely been the beneficiary of social, economic, political, and cultural benefits in this country or or not? Our very clear claim is that both of those things are true, and that the Christian tradition has something to say about that. Um, and so that's that's what we mean, that white supremacy is a cultural disorder whose racial designations are modern, and in the function of those designations is, in fact, political advantage or what we call supremacy.
0: I mean, Amy, Julie, yeah. you know, we want to acknowledge that that phrase is one that evokes a lot of discomfort and even offense in some people, right? It's a hard phrase. Yeah. Um, but like you said, we we made the decision to take it head on and actually to employ it throughout the book, because we felt like not only would that be the most honest account of history and understanding of racism, but actually that we really can't get to the bottom of all this without actually naming it for what it is. Right. And again, at the risk of being redundant here, uh, repeating what Greg just said, it's that racism in in America did not just operate generically, but actually operated to the advantage of people that were designated white. Uh, People often forget that the idea of white or white people as a racial category is a nebulous thing uh, that didn't used to exist, right? What Greg said again, I I, I guess I am repeating him, right? That we used to operate more by nationality and ethnicity, right, we would identify people as Italian or as Irish or German or Jewish or et cetera. Uh, But people started to be uh, categorized, grouped, and identified with what became a social designation, not an ethnic, not a biological, not a physiological designation, a social categorization uh, that arranged all of society according to hierarchy, right? So the whole point here is that at the essence of racism is not hate, not interpersonal hate, but rather hierarchy, and there's, a, there's therefore a system and a culture that privileges and advantages people that are at the top of that hierarchy, namely white people, and then disadvantages those who are at the lower rungs of that hierarchy. Now, again, that's something that many people will acknowledge, I think, if you look at history, if you take an honest look at history, look at uh, the Annabelle era, era, the beginnings of, of uh, the United States, um, Jim Crow and the civil rights era, I think a lot of people will acknowledge that even if they're uncomfortable with that, but they then won't acknowledge that there are enduring effects that we still need to reckon with. uh, That those uh, evils that were committed um, to the advantage of white people is something that was not just a part of a bygone past, but actually endures even to this day and accounts for a lot of the disparities and the brokenness in our society that we see all around us every day. So again, acknowledging the discomfort of it, but inviting people to talk about it because there's really no way forward until we actually nail this down a little bit better.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah, and kind of embedded in what, well, certainly embedded in what both of you are saying is that we're not just talking about the advantages that have been uh, bestowed socially upon uh, people who are in the category white, but also the disadvantages and harms uh, that are bestowed upon the rest of the people. Um, and I'm curious within that, you all both mentioned whiteness, um, which as an idea, as much as it is a reality, um, a, a constructed idea that has evolved over the course of many hundreds of years. Um, so I'm wondering from a more personal perspective, in what ways like, do you identify with whiteness? Where do you see yourselves in that hierarchy and how is that um, perhaps affected the way you approach this topic
2: yes so so as a white guy (laughs) i'll let i'll I'll let let the
0: white guy talk first here
2: reverend (laughs) kwan would you like to address (laughs) Uh, i mean look i think that um so i'm i'm obviously a white a white man i'm from south carolina um i'm from a relatively historically poor family um not like a slave owning family um And I think that's important to acknowledge because, you know, people have speculated that I have like some plantation guilt. I I don't. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a a recognition of the fact that I grew up as a white man in a society that even though I didn't have like tons of economic advantages or things like that um, and things were not always easy, I was very conscious as early as high school um, that I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but i had the conscious thought as early as like ninth or tenth grade that i was thankful that i was a man and thankful that i was white because i was, I was just aware okay. of uh, and i wasn't thinking about these things at all i certainly wasn't um wasn't thinking about how to address these matters i just was very aware of this and and i think that what i was aware of was in some ways what Du Bois called the psychological wage that is paid to the, even the poorest white man that at least he's not black and i think that 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 that's So I identify with that, um, but I want to say this, um, Duke and I are both Christians and we operate out of a Christian anthropology, which is to say that what defines a human being is that they are created by God and made in God's image with all the particular glory that an individual has. Um, And so when I talk about identifying as white, I'm using a sociological designation and not a biological or a theological one. I'm just simply acknowledging that the, the fact of the matter is that because of the social designation that I have, um, that I occupy a certain space in this society. Even if I'm poor, I occupy the space of at least I'm not black, or at least I'm not this and that. That is really broadly attested, even um, in you know, kind of Appalachian history, mm-hmm. that there was this deep awareness of this fact, even with people who have been marginalized. Um, I, th- I think, so I just think it's important to understand that. And so I'm coming at this from saying, as a white person who has been at times a bystander at times a beneficiary of this system, but yet believes that it's wrong,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: what are my responsibilities? And that is really primarily what has driven me into this conversation. So I am not white.
1: Yeah.
2: I
0: am uh, <laughs> I'm Korean American, um, but I think, you know actually what what's been going on over the last couple of weeks um really the last year in regards to um uh, racist violence against asian americans
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and the uproar over the atlanta shootings and stuff i think highlights a little bit of the sort of the inescapability of sort of our our racialized existence in america every single one of us so right. asian americans our our struggle um is Related to this fact that who we are and where we land in, you know, what we described earlier as a hierarchy really has been arranged by uh, people who are designated white, right? And so there's a, always been throughout history this question about proximity to whiteness, proximity to, you know, how much do you sound like, feel like, uh, look like, smell like, right? I mean, all these ways to people that possess social power. Um, and social acceptance within society Um, and the fact that African-Americans have been from the very beginning designated to be at the bottom rung of the social ladder and everyone else is arranged in relation to those two poles right Right. which is why for me personally one of the reasons why um, I have a deep interest in serving and loving and partnering with our African-American brothers and sisters is in part this isn't the primary reason but that I believe even the liberation of Asian-Americans, as it were, can only be found in the liberation of Mm African-Americans. That Our our destinies are all bound up with one another uh, because uh, we we are understood in relation to the archetypal struggle between white and black in this country. So all that to say, um, since you were asking about where uh, each of us are located in this, uh, this is, you know, even as an Asian American, um, this is an inescapable racialized reality that all of us have to, to reckon with and deal with. Um, we pretend uh, each day that we can sort of avoid it or pretend that we're untouched by it, but it's simply uh, not true socially, economically, and even spiritually. But I want to be quick to note, though, that the main thing that drives both of us into this project and into the writing of this book is our Christian identity. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, do, it might seem like a, a, a strange uh, thing for a Korean American to be calling uh, people to the work of, of reparations. I mean, I'll be quick to say, look, not a single person in this country hasn't benefited from uh, the thefts of white supremacy in some fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Because this entire country has been built on the backs of uh, enslaved people. Um, who were uh, stolen, kidnapped, um, and whose wealth was also stolen, um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but we are calling people, not simply as white people, to engage in the work of reparations. Uh, if that were our only argument, then I would have no place in it. We're calling the Christian church.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, everyone who bears, not whiteness per se, but everyone who bears the name of Christ. Yeah. Uh, because the church itself, as a community, as a corporate entity, Uh, was complicit in and actually active perpetrators of the evils of white supremacy. And so this is why I've got a big responsibility, right? Uh, Though my family wasn't even here uh, for much of the history that we tell in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I am responsible corporately as a Christian, as a minister of Christ's church. And we together, uh, regardless of the particularities of our identities, um, are called to be about the work of repair. Mm.
1: Um, Thank you for that. That's really helpful. And um, I'd actually like to talk about that history just for a minute. Um, And maybe this is for our resident historian to answer, but um, I'd love to get a little sense of the history of reparations, but also whether when you all are talking about reparations, how that fits in that history, are you talking about the same thing? Are you talking about um, something that's more, I don't know, that's nuanced or different or, uh, and particularly Obviously, it is informed by your Christian faith. So, can you give us um, just a sense of like what is the historical scope of this conversation? You know, in a few minutes, and um, and where does what you all are talking and writing about where does it fit in that history?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I'll I'll, I'll start. Um, and Duke actually wrote a, a lot of the parts about the theological history of this, mm-hmm. and the and so I'll let him speak to that. I would say that it's important to understand that very early on um, in, in enslavement um, in the in the project of transatlantic slave trade and then the domestic enslavement there were people who were not only promoting the abolition of enslavement um, but were also promoting reparations for slave for those who had been enslaved That this is a very early part of the american Tradition. A lot of those folks are coming out of the Anabaptist or like Quaker tradition, yeah. but there were also Presbyterians and other people who were, uh, who were, and certainly people in, the, in historically Black churches, A.M.E., etc., that are talking about this, um, and they see it as a Christian response to people who had had things taken from them, that they be restored to well-being, that not only restitution be given, but they they be re- restored so that they themselves can flourish. There's been a very consistent tradition of, of in the American abolitionist um, strain of American history. Um, there's also been a history of American government practice with respect to, to reparations. Mm-hmm. Now, as you, you know, we, we currently have reparations bills that are on the table for Native Americans that that some tribes have refused to sign. Some nations have refused to sign because it what they want is their land back. Um, but we we also, as as we note in the book, um, we paid reparations to slave owners um, at emancipation, that we paid reparations to victims of internment in the Japanese camps. We actually have forced nations overseas uh, to pay reparations. So in our own, not only our own American um, abolitionist, anti-racist history, but in our like government practice, we understand that this is true. And as we note in the book, when the United States government, the United States government has shown the capacity and the political will to do reparations when it's in its interest domestically and internationally. And it's really important for people to understand that as just a matter of like historical trajectory. But Duke has, I think, a lot of really helpful things to say about particular theological arguments and people who are talking about restitution and repair.
0: Yeah, I mean, like like Greg said, the, the impulse, the moral impulse to see reparations as a necessary response to the thefts of slavery um, started very early on. Um, in our research, we were able to uh, d- dig up and discover that um, it appears that 1715 was the earliest public appeal made uh, to Christians in America um, to uh, make restitution um, for uh, slaves, and to actually give not only money, but also provisions and care uh, to emancipated slaves. So again, not just to free them, but actually uh, to restore them to their original condition, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 1715, what's important about that is that it predates the founding of America. And it goes uh, way, way back an old, long theological history and heritage that we have inherited and that we need to reclaim um, and, uh, and and act upon now, um, because Christians, though there were a scattering of uh, Christians that actually did make restitution to former slaves, especially in the Quaker community, um, generally that was not uh, something that was widely practiced. Um, Of course, at the end of the Civil War, there was a renewed interest in um, uh, restitution reparations, um, including among Christians. Uh, But by this point, uh, several decades in, it became an exclusively African-American endeavor. Um, So uh, white folks, uh, politicians, activists, initially uh, expressed interest in uh, restoring formerly enslaved people. uh, But uh, by the turn of the century, it was only African-Americans that were lobbying for this, interested um, in this. um, And part of that was because the rest of the nation was more, the rest of the white part of the nation was more uh, interested in sectional reconciliation, not racial reconciliation, but uh, peace and solidarity between North and South. That that was the priority. And so all this other stuff about enslavement and about race difference and all that, uh, that's secondary, that's tertiary at that point Um, by the civil rights movement, um, especially as frustrations grew over uh, progress that didn't appear to be made um, the uh, call for reparations also rose up. Uh, but but after that point, then again, it quieted down and it died. And then it peaked back up again in the 80s after President Reagan offered reparations to Japanese Americans. Mm. And that sort of restoked conversations. Oh, I guess the government is willing to do this. Well, how about for African Americans? Why Japanese Americans, not African Americans? Oh. Uh, this uh, sort of unpaid invoice, <laughs> this debt that had yet to be reckoned with. Um, that, that people started uh, stoking up that conversation as well. So that headed, brought us into even uh, the 90s and the 2000s. Um, but so the, again, there's just this roller coaster ride of interest and then, um, and then uh, a forgetting and a negligence, um, and then rise in interest again. Our hope is that uh, there can be a new conversation, not just across the nation, but especially among Christians. At this time, and part of the reason why we wanted to write the book,
2: and I think I think you just underline the phrase Reagan offered (laughs) reparations, like seriously, right? Because because part of what we're experiencing is people hear about this, they're like, "Oh, this is just like a bunch of Marxist whatever," and we're like, "Wait a minute, the president who was like the Cold War champion (laughs) is the one who had the category." for this putatively Marxist thing called reparations. Mm. It isn't, it right. isn't, it is, this is like basic, This is like basic act of citizenship, of governance, of diplomacy, of international relations. Mm-hmm. Like it's just that, that American Christian imagination and a largely American cultural imagination um, has been inoculated to thinking about this with respect to African-Americans um, and I think that, that there's something that really, impo- really important that needs to be explored there as to why, why we can see it when we talk about Israel and Palestine, why we can see it when we talk about other nations, but we cannot see it when we're talking about what everybody in the world <laughs> recognizes is this 400-year you know, history uh, of, of degradation of people who are viewed as not white in America. Why can we not do it there? And that is the moral question that we're seeking to raise and the press.
1: Yeah, and I, I, those are all great points. And it's really helpful within that also to say this has been a Christian idea for a very long time. This is not new, and it's not emerging out of Marxism, it's emerging out of biblical readings. And you all do a great job in the book, I think, of going back to saying, okay, when God, I mean, there's provision literally in the scriptures for what happens if something is stolen from someone else. And I love the distinguishing um, line you put between restitution and restoration. That simply being paid back what you are owed is not the same as being restored um, to wholeness and to fullness. So there's a lot in all of that. There's also though, and I think this is where, um, I don't think people, I don't know, I don't know if they say this, but I think money is a big um, stumbling block taboo subject again and you're writing about theft and you're writing about theft of more than just um, financial terms but there is a financial reality right to all of this and I would just like to think well I'd like you all to explore a little bit um, with for us this history of theft and also what does it mean to address that theft Um, maybe not only in monetary terms but including the financial like the actual monetary aspect of
2: the theft that we're talking about. So I'll say that um, one of the things that people don't, I think, fully appreciate about this book, and we haven't really made it explicit, and I think we're seeing that as we're reading responses, is that this is in some way a call for American Christians to reimagine. It's, it's, We're speaking to the imagination. And so when people say, well, what does this look like? What are we supposed to do exactly? I think Um, and, and people are saying, you don't give us enough specifics. I think that they're right about that. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is because what we're saying is we're not at the place of specifics yet because we have not as a, as a community, meaning, you know, the kind of broadly white, uh, Christian community that we're a part of yet even imagined our own theological history or imagined our cultural history in such a way that allows us to even ask the right questions. Um, and so part of part of what is a victory for us <laughs> is that people are just going, wait a minute, could it possibly be true that our theological tradition actually invites us to this? Um, because people don't have the imagination for it yet. Um, and our conviction is that because we believe in the, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that um, once people begin to ask the questions and get their minds in this redemptive and reparative frame of imagination that people will figure out what to do. Um, we actually think that that's true. I mean, look, um, we, we as a Christian church, we believe things that are very difficult, like that's, that a being could be both one and three at the same time, mm-hmm. that another being could be both fully God and fully human at the same time. We have no problem navigating that kind of, of conceptual complexity. I think we can probably figure out how to navigate this kind of cultural complexity, but we can only do that if we're willing to get in the sort of reparative and doxological imagination and missiological imagination that allows us to ask the questions non-defensively, but creatively in the first place. I'm not avoiding the question. I just wanted to acknowledge the difficulty of this and the fact that we don't specify and to try to articulate why why that is um, I've rambled a lot, so I'll let Duke I talk right now. Say,
1: yeah, I'll let Duke talk too. But I will say that you do, you do spark the imagination. I, I mean, it, it's and not in completely ethereal ways, right? I mean, you do talk about um, what would it look like for a church elder board to think about um, sharing some of their financial. Uh, you know, whatever they're taking in from their congregation with another congregation that has been historically excluded from whiteness, right? I mean, things like that. So I I just, as a little plug for what you all have done, I think (laughs) you, you. you spark those conversations and we'll get to the local level in a minute, but there's also that aspect of it that you're not trying to prescribe what this looks like for everyone in every context. You're trying to suggest that we should be having the conversation in every context and figuring out what that might look like. So, sorry, that was my no, little no, sorry.
0: introduction. No, yeah, no, th- thanks for that. And, and I mean, look, this is, this is how my imagination personally gets sparked. Um, the, the heuristic that I use is just this language that we do have in the book of the, the call to reparations is to reverse engineer all the ways in which these harms and these thefts and this plunder of the African-American community was committed in a sort of a mass, comprehensive, multi-generational fashion, right? So then, so how does your imagination get fired up? Well, you got to know history. You got to know exactly how thefts were committed with specificity and with depth and with great evil. And if you don't know that, then you don't know what you're going to have to do to undo those things, Mm -hmm. right? And so it, it feels like a lot of people are asking the question, well, what do we do? What do we do? It's like, well, can, let's look back and find out what has happened, right? We talk about white supremacy as a cultural disorder in part because it is by definition hard to define. It's an ecosystem of organisms, of an environment. It's the whole system and the space in between. It's the air we breathe, right? So it's hard to pin down definitionally, but it, we can see the effects of it. So we see, we talk about in the book, the theft of not just wealth, but also of truth. Uh, the way in which the truth about Black dignity has been stolen, not just with our words and rhetoric, but with images. I mean, that itself, you could just run with that and say, what are all the ways in which the image of the Black face and body has been defaced and vandalized? In other words, their glory and dignity has been robbed from them over 400 years. And I'll note, if that is what has been uploaded into our collective minds and hearts, how long do we think, it'll take to extract those defaced, vandalized images, the theft of black dignity. How long will it take for us to remove that from our collective minds and hearts before we can say we're done? Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a a long work. So that's the theft of of truth. And that includes uh, the overriding of historical lies that have been told again and again, uh, not only about American history, but again, about the truth of black dignity and black lives. There's the theft of power. Uh, social power, political power, electoral power, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we talk about these three categories of theft, truth, power, and wealth. The call to reparations is to find ways to restore all of these ways in which um, African-Americans have been uh, terribly robbed. Um, But again, just to to end where I began, uh, some of our lack of imagination and creativity you know, people are asking us to, well, hey, you got to prescribe a little with more specificity what we need to do. I think our answer is what we need to do is look back and understand history better, and actually, that's where we'll find the template, mm-hmm. and that's actually where we'll find uh, enormous possibility because there's a lot of work to be done. We're not going to give you six pages of an easy-to-follow guide. What we're going to do is give you history, and then let you unleash your love upon a broken and wounded world. That's the call.
2: That's right. And I think the, the structure of the book, I mean, Julia, really actually illustrates the point. There are three chapters about history, mm-hmm. three about theology, and one about right. application. And that's not because we're trying to equivocate. It's because we actually don't think that, that many, many of our readers are yet prepared for chapter seven, that they have to do mm-hmm. chapters one to six. And then once they do, it's actually an expression of our confidence in the spirit and in the work of the church, right. to say, how do, we, how do we do this? I mean, Lord, the Christian church, like, we invented educational systems. We invented <laughs> markets. We invented, you know, lots of versions of city planning and, 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 and the university. Like, I'm not worried about our creative capacity once we start asking the questions to figure some stuff out. What, what deeply worries me is our resistance to asking the questions precisely because we don't see where they're gonna lead. That seems to me to be a, a form of an impoverished theological imagination and a moral, of an impoverished moral life.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I do wanna bring the conversation to the local level because you all do that. And I think that's important. So I have two questions within that. One, um, what role does the individual play within the work of reparation? Um, And two, why is the local church so important to this, uh, both imaginative and ultimately what we would hope would be a constructive work in the world?
0: Well, I'll take a shot at that just for the, especially the first part of the question. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot that the individual can do, especially in regard to moral formation and cultivating these convictions. I, I will say, though that this is such a new and even foreign, and in many cases, threatening topic, um, that I I think it is best fostered, nurtured in community. Um, And so whether if it's not just the reading of this book, which I think is best read in community and discussed and and all the rest, uh, but even just sort of talking and normalizing the language of repair, normalizing the language of white supremacy, normalizing uh, reparations as a biblical idea and mm-hmm. a calling to the church. So I think there's a, a vital corporate dimension, even in the work of reparations, I would say um, it works best in a corporate setting. So before uh, we started this uh, call here, right? And Amy, Julie, we were talking about, you know, an example of uh, people in your life and people that I know in my life that are saying, well, what can I individually do?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And
0: what's, what's at the forefront of their minds is this idea of like handing over Money to an individual. Well, it gets really awkward real quick. Mm
1: -hmm. And it
0: even becomes a paternalistic, though well intended endeavor. Right. If we're not careful when it when we start to think of it as just an individual endeavor or a transaction that I just need to execute. Here's my reparations. That's not going to go over well. Right. <laughs> so right. so uh, we and 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 that's even not even addressing the issue of impact in terms of actual social change and all this will work better when it's executed institutionally and corporately, which is why we talk primarily to the local church. Um, as the agent and instrument mm. of, uh, of uh, reparational change um, in, in, in the book. Of course, there's gonna be things that individuals can do and maybe in some cases must do or a family must uh, do. But as far as the wider movement of reparations, we see that being a corporate endeavor.
1: I'm yeah, I'm thinking about how though, even the fact that our churches are so functionally segregated can still runs the risk of um, perpetuating that dynamic of paternalism, even in that context. And that, I think, brings us to this history of the church in terms of, okay, what does it mean? Why, Why are we so functionally segregated. I talked with um, David Swanson, who was the author of Rediscipling the White Church on the podcast a couple weeks ago um, uh, in ways that I think if any listener is listening to this and has not listened to that um, conversation, they dovetail really nicely as far as just these questions of, you know, the church itself is a victim of white supremacy, um, if that's the right word, in the ways in which we have been um, torn apart from one another and made choices to be apart from one another and harmed one another, even within the body of Christ. And so there's just a tremendous work of repair um, that have, and they're chicken and egg as far as what it would mean, as you all have mentioned, just hugging someone who is black as a white person or even truly befriending is not the work of repair. Uh, That may be part of it in terms of reconciling, um, great, but that's not uh, this more comprehensive understanding of things. So um, with all of that said, there's so much more we could talk about, but I did wanna, um, as we come to the end of our time, ask you all to um, give A little bit at the end of the book you give some examples of the beginnings of repair and I would love to just end with some of those stories where you've begun to see that work in action in local communities so um, you can take your pick um, on what you want to share but I would love to end with a little bit of a kind of hint in that direction there are communities that are starting to do this and here's what it's starting to look like
2: yeah well thank you for ending there because I think part of what animated this work is a, what we sense to be a sort of despondency and a resignation in the broadly white church about, mm-hmm. is this even possible? And and I just, I want to acknowledge that the fact that we are legitimately having to talk about hugging another human being as an act of social courage is simply a sign of how deeply sick this culture is okay and i just we just want to continue to like hold that in front of us that that is not normal Mm -hmm. um i mean it's sociologically normal and historically tragic um but we understand just that that we sense in the in the kind of um in the church this and we sense in the criticisms of repair of reparations a sort of despondency about about is this even possible and I, Um, i want to say to you how overwhelmingly consistent it is that people are essentially rejecting the book when they reject it based on the grounds that they cannot imagine how one could do it. And that, that, is not, that is not a sign of the failure of the argument or a failure of the account of history, but a failure of the imagination. And I think we just have to continue to say that we're at the beginning of thinking about this as a people. And so we have yet to imagine what's possible. That said, I think, um you know we we talked about several different things. Um, I'll talk about one of them uh, in terms of examples of reparations. We talk about you know reparations of truth, wealth, and power. I want to talk about the truth part. Hmm. and i think I think the the memorial for lynching victims in Montgomery is really an important example because what we're what that is, these are people who were forgotten, whose names were erased, who were killed in public spectacle. And then it was hushed up and were never these people were never held, people were never held accountable for these murders. And now what has happened is that there is a memorial to these people with their names, with their places, with their dates, with the soil um, from the places where they were killed on display as an enduring testimony to the fact that this is real. Um, and that this is a part of our history. And I mean, my own work is in public memorialization, you know, and, and that re- my work is in the area of reparations of truth. And I think that that, that what Brian Stevenson and his team did there is profoundly important because they are literally re-narrating the American landscape, a landscape that is that has like hidden and been premised on a certain sort of self-serving forgetfulness. And now they're insisting that counties all over the United States can put these things as, a, as like perpetual witness to what is true. And I think that, that churches in their own communities ought to ask, why, why don't we know anything about the black churches in our town? Why don't we know anything about what African-Americans have done in our town? Why do we know more about the church in Iran than we do about the black churches in our town? Um, and begin to sort of collaborate, to learn those stories and tell those stories. And I think churches, I personally think that churches ought to be leading the way in the rememorialization effort in the United States. Mm.
0: That's great. There's, uh, maybe I'll mention, there's a, there's a, a, a growing movement of churches uh, that are engaged in what they've described as justice deposits. I think you, it's even a hashtag if you look it up, mm. um, where people are, uh, churches and individuals are intentionally moving their um, personal assets, checking accounts, saving accounts uh, to black owned um, and black led banks Mm -hmm. um, across the country. And the idea there is that black owned banks actually uh, historically do a better job of actually serving the black communities in their local areas. Mm -hmm. And as Mm -hmm. far as black Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs or supporting local black endeavors. Uh, So there's a reinvestment into the black community that tends to happen. And that's also because uh, non-black banks generally tend to persist in a strange sort of racist obstruction of in in its lending practices. And and, and no one's doing this intentionally, but it's still happening as different surveys and research uh, continues to show. Uh, So simply by moving uh, one's uh, personal assets, your checking account, your saving account uh, to a black bank, you are uh, by doing so, you're recapitalizing these banks that are doing a better job Wells Fargo or Bank of America is um, in serving the Black community. Mm. This is a form of sort of a precursor to reparations that we talk about in the book. Uh, It's sort of removing the obstacles of wealth and increasing uh, the capacity for wealth in the local (laughs) Black community in your um, area. And here's the thing, it's low-hanging fruit because it doesn't cost you a dime.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) You're just literally moving uh, uh, your stuff to the bank that you're now going to call your own. Um, Little actions like that are very actionable uh, by local churches. Um, uh, I'll also point out, for instance, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they're about to uh, celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa uh, massacre, where um, one of the wealthiest um, Black communities um, at that time in uh, 1921 was absolutely decimated um, by a racist riot. Um, And so there's a lot of memorialization, remembrance, and uh, sort of a look to the future that's happening in the coming months. And I know a number of churches are trying to get involved, right? So this is sort of the restoration of truth as well as a posture of repentance that these churches are taking Hmm. um, in supporting what our civic efforts. So again, it's not that the church needs to come up with their own ideas in every instance, right? They don't need to be the creators of these initiatives. And we kind of need to get over that churches. Sometimes we feel like it's not really ministry unless it was our idea. Sometimes what we need to do is get behind it um, and not even put our name on the banner, (laughs) right? Just get behind, Uh, good work that's being done and that actually bears fruit in the African-American community. Um, That's something that I know uh, Christian communities in Tulsa, Oklahoma are doing. That's the sort of thing we need to do more of.
1: Yeah, well, thank you um, for these examples. I uh, actually have been to the memorial in Montgomery and uh, with our family, and it is an incredibly powerful experience. Um, and actually just watched the HBO documentary, um, True Justice, which is about um, Brian Stevenson, but also about the creation of that uh, memorial. And for any listeners, just commend those as Examples and I love the I love your comprehensive truth, power, and wealth um, in terms of thinking about the work of repair. And to your point, that there are lots of imaginative possibilities. And I and I just want to also say this is certainly first and foremost about repairing the wrong that has been um, perpetrated upon an entire group of people over the course of many centuries. But the way that what is true and right and good works is that um, everyone is actually bound up in that repair in the goodness and justice and love of it. And so sure. Might that mean that at the end of the day, my bank account is smaller. I don't know, maybe, but the, that what would the end of the day would be joy. The end of the day would be love. The end of the day would be goodness. Um, and so the smaller bank account would be a per, just a peripheral aspect of what we're talking about or the um, perceived loss of social status when someone else is actually raised up into the dignified um, position that they deserve within our relationships. Again, that's my gain, that's not my loss. Uh, so I just um, appreciate the portrait of restoration that's holistic and again this is not the point of your book but I do think for white Christians to imagine this in terms of loss is really um, erroneous like it's just wrong it's just not how God does things Um, and so that sense of we could all together be a part of this healing a beautiful imaginative creative healing work together I think that's really exciting. And I do hope that this um, is one piece of, as you said, kind of animating uh, the church's imagination around it. So thank you for your time. I you. We could go on and on, but yeah. I really appreciate what you've shared with us here today.
2: Thank, thank you. you. Love being with you. Really appreciate all you do.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. I do want to remind you that we're giving away a copy of Reparations. And if you want to enter to win, just share this podcast episode on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and be sure to tag me when you share it so I know to enter you. There are more details about all of this in the show notes, as well as all the references to various um, books and movies and historic sites that we just talked about. I will be back next week with an interview with Oshita Moore. She's the author of Dear White Peacemakers. I'm really excited to talk to her and to be able to share this new book with you as well. Until then, I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you to Breaking Ground, to Jake Hansen, to Amber Beery for all your support of this podcast. And for you, the listener, as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.